0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all of its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. Good morning, everybody. I'd like to jump into Colossians chapter 1, starting verses 15, going to 20. Um, It's a little intimidating when uh, she says he has a good message that he prepared, I'm like, okay, hold it now. <laughs> so, uh, but Jesus got it, right? So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, a little bit of background about where we're at with Colossians and what was going on in that time this is a letter written from Paul out of the prison, out of uh, being incarceration to Colossae. And Paul is addressing some false teachers that are basically saying that Jesus was not enough for salvation. It wasn't enough for them to even just be a person and exist. And they made Jesus and the church out to be really small, okay? They believed in some types of philosophies uh, that had a Jewish influence. This Jewish influence was like having to retain, uh, refrain from certain foods, observing certain days, uh, even the circumcision. Uh, they also went to the point where they would be worshiping, uh, encouraging the worship of angels, opening themselves to spiritual forces connected somehow to the stars and the planets. They also were um, uh, open to this state of being, this, this special state of being. And um, so Paul is refuting this, and he comes to this place in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and he just lays it out on the line. And I just want to read through it, all those scriptures, and then I want to dive a little bit deeper. So Colossians 1:15, if you can find yourself there, he is the image of the invincible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We have a lot of content to go over. I want to start off with this verse 15 where he says that he is... The image of the invincible, invisible God. I want to look at what is this invisible God like? Why is God invisible? Let's see if we can get an understanding of this. I would like to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is a prophet. He is one that God uses, and a prophet would speak on God's behalf to God's people. Isaiah is, uh, starts off in the year of the king Uzziah. There was a king named Uzziah had died, and God gives Uzziah, uh, Isaiah this vision. He allows him to see. And it says here, in, the king of, uh, in, in that year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, the two that covered his face and two that covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, I would like to first point out that this is most likely the pre-incarnate Christ on this throne. And it says that his train of his robe filled the temple. When Majesty would come in, they would have a robe, a train following them, and most likely it would overflow with special uh, um, fabric and material that was was very expensive and very unique and it would maybe flow over the sides of a throne. but this one says that it just didn't flow over the sides, but it filled the whole temple and then it says there was these creatures that God had made, and he said they stood. There, the seraphim, and it said they had six wings. God is very uh, resourceful when it comes to his creation. He creates creation with a purpose, and so we see that this 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 uh, creatures were there with these six wings, just like when he makes the the hoof of a mountain go split so he can climb upon rocks, or the eagle's large wingspan so they can soar in the air. So therefore, we see this creature with two wings that cover their feet, two wings that cover their eyes, and two wings that they can fly around. These creatures were there, the seraphims were there to minister to God the whole time. They were in the glory of God. But what I want to call to your attention is that the wings that covered their eyes because they were not able to see or stand the glory of God. And then the rest of the verse says that they cried out, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The heavenly creatures were in the glory of God to minister to him. They, yes, indeed had to cover their faces And why did they cover their face? Well, let's look at another passage of Scripture that will maybe explain a little bit more on why they covered their face. We need to go to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. We find Moses. Anybody know who Moses is? Moses is one that was brought up in the house of Pharaoh, leaves the house of Pharaoh to set God's people free. Moses was one that was there that was able to see the mighty hand of God move upon Pharaoh and the people the egyptians when he did not want to let the people go mighty plagues came right we also find pharaoh that was i mean we find moses there seeing god split the red sea for his people to walk through and then we come to this place where he leads them into the wilderness And then all of a sudden, he's here at this Mount Sinai, and he's there to speak with God. And the Bible says he speaks to him as a friend, having a conversation with God. And Moses, being presumptuous, says, I know I've seen all these things, but I want to see the good, I mean the best. I want to see the greatest part of you. And Moses says in 33 verse 18, it says, Moses said, please show me Your glory and he said I and and he said I will make all my goodness pass before you and you will proclaim before you uh, before you my name this is God saying the Lord and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy but he said Moses you're asking me for something that you know cannot be possible and he tells him You cannot see my face, for man shall not live. Man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, "Behold, there is a place by me, where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, but by I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back." And the original word says his. His, his uh, loins his rear of his loins my, but, but my face shall not be seen what we find here is that God is in invisible we are unable to see his face because it is so holy if we were to see it or anything were to see it, it is so holy they would die and that's what he tells him. if you see my face you know you will die but I'll pass by and I'll put you in this cleft, and I'll allow you to see the backside. Uh, thirty-four, verse twenty-nine, we see after after God moves across, and Moses is there, and he is in the glory of God, only seeing God's back. Moses now comes down in Exodus chapter thirty-four, verse twenty-nine. Exodus 34, verse 29 says, When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Right here at this moment, Just by seeing the back of God and being in the glory of God, his face shined so bright and was so powerful that Aaron and the people said, Moses, hide your face. Moses, hide your face. And Moses had to put a veil to be able to come to talk to the people. There is a holiness that God has that we cannot see Because it is so pure, and that's what holiness means, to be separate, it is so distinct, it is so different, it is so holy. It is something that is like no other. And that's why in my opinion, the holiness is invincible to man and we are unable to look on this holiness and live. Now let's go back to Isaiah and his response to what he saw in his vision. So Isaiah sees this glory of God. He does not see the face of God, and he sees as an example that these seraphims cover their face. And then what happens? It says, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the normal and proper response when we come in contact with a holy God. This holiness leads us to understand that he is holy and that we are not. Two things, and this becomes very practical for us, that every human being absolutely must come to understand is that, uh, are that the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. These topics are difficult for people to face and they go together. If we understand who God is and catch a glimpse of his majesty, purity and holiness then we are instantly aware of the extent of our own corruption why is this so important and why is this so practical because what happens when we realize how holy God is we flee to grace because we recognize there's no way that we could ever stand before God apart from grace and we'll talk a little bit more about what that grace is like Now Paul is about to kick off the most profound statement in all the New Testament about who Jesus is. Because remember, this false teaching is saying that Jesus is not enough. And you'll find in all the world religions and every other belief other than the true belief about the true God in the Bible will minimize who Jesus is. Your people that don't know Christ have no problem saying Jesus is a good guy, Jesus is a prophet, he was a good teacher, he did good things. They will stir away from saying that he is who Paul is about to say who he is. And he says what? In 1 Timothy 1, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6, 14, 17, before I get to that says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from approach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he goes to describe, this is Timothy saying, who Lord Jesus Christ is, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is blessed, I'm sorry, and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That is who Jesus is. Paul says he is the image of the invincible God. This word image is a visible representation of something, a manifestation of God, the Holy One, to created beings. Hebrews 1 3 says it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He holds up the universe by the word word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Romans 9 5 says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ who is. God over all, blessed forever, amen. In no uncertain terms, Paul is stating something very, very powerful and the most important description of Christ in all of the New Testament, that he is God. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples in John fourteen nine, he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. You have seen the Father. You have seen this invincible God who you cannot look at his face now become visible in the person of Christ. Back to the later part of Colossians 1.15, he is not just the image of the invincible God, but he's the firstborn of all creation. What firstborn of all creation means is not literally the first that was born, because the first one that was born was Cain. Adam and Eve were created by God. They were not born. Cain, the first son of Eve and Adam, was born. What this means, when it means firstborn, means to be supreme, to to be preeminent, to be above all and supreme of all, So he says he's the firstborn, a mother, he's above all creations. And how we'll know this is for sure, in the very next verse he says, For by him all things were created. You cannot be a creator and be created. For your, I'm sorry, in heaven and on earth, Visible and invincible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It's very important here that Paul is very distinct about these rulers and these thrones because if they're uh, uh, encouraging people to worship some type of angel or have some type of, of spiritual force that they are to give honor to, he says he's created all those things. He says, Who created the world? Who created the world? Does anybody know? God. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why dominions and why rulers? Because these are false teachers that want them to worship something other than God. He created all things not just to create them, but He created them with purpose. He created them for Himself. For Himself. This is where it becomes very practical again. Where you live was created for him. Your family was created for him. Your friendships were created for him. Your workplace is created for him. People you work with were created for him. Your church family was created for him. See, when we complain about any of the above, we do not have a proper view of God. And his creation the reason we complain is because we are looking at what God made as just an object or a barrier instead of the, a person or a gift of his provision. If we reduce a person to an object, then it's either you give me what I want or what I need instead of it being God's creation, meaning that I should steward and care for and foster a relationship with this person. That I should know that they too are a person like me. No, you become an object. Give me what I need. And if you don't give me what I need, then I need you to get out of the way. Become an object. This is where theology becomes practical. This is where the gospel becomes practical. This is where the creation becomes practical. Because who made them? God did. Whether they believe or don't believe in God, God made them. If we look at what God has provided as a gift, we will be able to be thankful. But if we think he owes us, we will become ungrateful. Verse 17 says, Colossians, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There is nothing that is more powerful, more bigger, or has been here longer than Jesus. Jesus, being the creator, has the power to hold all things together. He holds matter and space and time. He holds the earth, the ecosystem, the mountains, the sea, and the land. He holds the human body and all its systems, like the blood system, the nervous system, the skeletal system, reproductive system, digestive system, immune system, muscle system. You get the idea. But more importantly than all above that, he holds together the salvation of our soul and the eternity of our life, our eternal lives. Again this is where it becomes very practical. So. It's an understatement when we wonder if he is able to hold our lives together. I want you to know that he's got you. Somebody turn to your neighbor and say, he's got you. Come on, say it like you mean it, he's got you. That's right, wake up, church. Then Paul now gives the same validation that he gives to Jesus, he gives to the church. Paul gives this same validation that he gives to Jesus, he gives now to the church right in the middle of these verses, which is, is actually maybe a hymn that is made to be sung. In the middle is verse 18, and he, is, he goes to, the, he goes to it and he says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He says he is the head of the body, the church. The church is now God's body, and he is now the head. He's saying this head, the one that you cannot look at with your eyes, the one that created all things, the one that holds all things together, the one that is above all, is supreme of all, is now the head of this church, which is the body. The body is Christ's body. Ephesians 1, 21, 23 says it this way. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body. Check out this next part. The fullness of him who fills all in all. You colossi. You false teachers in Colossae, I want you to get something here Paul is saying. He is the fullness of all in all. The one that Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The one that told Moses, you must hide in the cleft of the rock or you will die because of my holiness. That is who the fullness is, who is the fullness of him is in all the church. Ephesians 4, 11-16 makes it more practical and breaks it down on how God designs the church to be able to sustain and be built up in love. He says, and he gave the apostles, verses uh, Ephesians 4, 11-16, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ so that his His institution, his gifts, who he's put there to do this, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to the maturity of manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He gives this earthly, God-given instrument of people To be able to build us up to the full stature, which is perfection in Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine and human cunning, by craftiness and deceitfulness and schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together by every joint with which it is equipped The whole body is equipped with these parts that God has put there. And it says when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, it's enough. Because it is Christ. That's who the body is. I would like to to read to you from the commentary of the Reformed Study Bible, and I quote, The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen to this quote. Saints ministers to each other with further the building of the body of Christ. Will continue until all believers attain maturity and perfection as defined by the norm of Jesus Christ himself. This process will last until Christ's return from heaven, so that the mark of the increasing maturity is believers' ongoing pursuit and of conformity to Christ, of helping one another in that pursuit as they await the return of Jesus. End quote. This is God's design. It puts a whole other spin as I'm just going to go to church, or oh yeah, I like to be part of that church. Or, you don't have to go to church. Or, oh, it's just the church. It puts a whole other spin. This is, this is huge. This is the fullness of Christ in full action. How? Through his people. How would he use someone like me? Because it is Christ who indwells the believer and the church. Every believer has the ability to minister in one way or another to each other. It's all God's doing inside the believer. It's all God's doing inside of the believer. We must never come to a place where we think that God cannot use us. It's a slap in the face to God. It's telling him somehow that you're going to qualify to be used. It's somehow you're going to be able to use what stuff you know or how good you're at it or, or your ability. If you think that you're unqualified, you think you can qualify. The only thing that makes us qualify for us to be used of God is what Christ did on the cross and his spirit now indwelling us to produce what he wants to produce, which is the fruit of the spirit. It is Christ doing in us. So we must never come to a place where we think that God cannot use us. And that's really important and very practical because when you miss out on meeting together for God to use you, whether it's here, whether it's in squads, whether it's walking down the street or whatever part of life, You're missing out on what someone needs to be ministered to and the building up. You're going against the very nature that God has given you, the divine nature. This divine nature is to build up one another. Many times we are sick, we are depressed, we are anxious, we are separate, we are going through hard times. We cannot make it because we are detached from the very Very body of Christ, not eternally. I'm just saying for a moment, we shut ourselves off. We isolate ourselves. Because why? We've been hurt in life, and we think that's the way to deal with it. But that is not the way to deal with it. The way to deal with it is to bring your hurt, bring your pain, bring your struggle, and watch what God does with it. I don't know about you, but I'm one of the pastors here, and there are times I go to my squad, and I say, man, I just am about to lose it. I need you to pray for me. You can see on, the, on one of our text quotes the other day, hey, could you pray for me? And I am not kidding you, without a doubt, 10 minutes later, I am no longer feeling the same way, having the same thoughts. I don't know what it is, it's spiritual, supernatural, don't matter to me. What matters to me is it works, right? God knows what he's doing. I don't need to understand him, I don't need to see his eyes, I don't need to see his face to understand. He is who he says he is, and what he says is true and effective. So we sh- must not ever come to that place. Or that can- God cannot use others to minister to us. Jay don't have no superpowers. I have no superpowers. Tony has no superpowers. You guys got superpowers. <laughs> so wherever you go, I want to hang out with you. Because <laughs> you've got a super Jesus in you. You know what I'm saying? It ain't you. It's Jesus. Just think about the first church 3,000 saved in one day. They began to meet together in the homes and in the temple. They saw the presence of God accompanying them in signs and wonders, and God added to them day after day after day. Why? Because God did it. Just like he brought them to Christ, he also is going to mature them in Christ. And that's usually what you'll see. You will see signs and wonders and miracles, not something we look to in a wrong, mysterious way, but God just shows up. I don't know about you, but I've had him show up many times in my life where it doesn't make any sense. I remember a time where my pipes were frozen in the middle of winter, and it's 30 degrees outside, or below 30 degrees, and at night, my father-in-law says, and it's like a week of my pipes been frozen, and he says, let's just stop and pray about it. And I'm like, it's nighttime, like, What is going to happen if we pray? I mean, seriously. So we gather hands before he leaves. He's got faith. I obviously don't got faith. We pray, and I kid you not, 30 seconds later, my pipes, my water starts coming out of my toilets after me hauling water every day for five days. Why? Because we call on the one that can do the impossible If he can make my pipes thaw out or do whatever he had to do to make them work so we can use the toilet, I think he can minister to you and me. That came out weird. But it made you laugh. I didn't plan that, as you can see. Stick to the script, Rodney. Stick to the script. But it's important to understand that we must come to always remember that Christ builds up the church through the church that's essential that these false teachers are saying that the fullness of God who is in Christ who is in all the church is not enough you need to add to that but Paul under the inspiration of god's spirit declares otherwise what is he stating here paul is stating that the church now paul is stating you are the church and the and the invincible holy god who no one can look on his face, is Jesus, is the head of that church. Holy moly. Let's look at verse 19. Paul says, Paul goes right back at it again to reiterate that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Jesus. He just said that already. Why is he saying it again? They say things twice, they say things three times because they want us to get it. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Church, God was pleased to dwell in Jesus and Jesus is pleased to dwell in the church because it's his body. We are not our own. So recap of the last verses we went to. God is invincible because no one can stand to look at him and live. He is holy. Jesus is God. The invincible becomes visible. Jesus is creator. Creates all things. Jesus holds all things together. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is preeminent and superior over all. Which leads us to our last verse. They say this is a hymn and he's singing this hymn. Paul is singing this hymn. He's written this hymn for them to sing about who God is. And verse 20 is the culmination, the the high point, the climax of this hymn. And he says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That means everything that was affected and broken by sin that's made is going to be reconciled. But more important than that is that he would reconcile not just what he's made, but his people by the blood of the cross. Why is verse 20 the highlight, the high point of these verses? It comes down to this. Every human being absolutely must come to understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. We must understand that God has wrath against sin. That those that don't repent of their sin that cause us not to see that, I'm sorry, that he has Wrath against those that sin, and what causes the very cause that keeps us from seeing him face to face. See, God must be angry in the right way against what keeps you seeing him from face to face. The invincible, the holy of holies is his face because no one has seen it, it's separate to this day. Wow. J.R. Packer summarizes, and I quote, he says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble, ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead the right and necessary reaction to the objective moral of evil. If this evil keeps you from being with Jesus, why do you think that God would not be angry against that? You, if you're a parent, if anyone or anything got in the way of you being with your child, you would be angry at that. If anyone got in the way of you being with your mother, your father, or your loved one, your relative that you care about so much, your best friend, you would be angry at that. Out of God's love, he allows us to realize that he is holy and we are sinful, that we are unable to obtain that holiness. So it causes us to stop making excuses for our sins and calling them mistakes, but convicts us in our hearts and causes us to cry out for mercy and grace, which leads us to reconciliation, to holding on to this reconciliation that Christ does. Reconciliation comes from the Greek uh, family of words that, is, um, that has its roots in alasso. The meaning common to this word group is change or exchange. Reconciliation involves a change in the relationship between God. It assumes that there has been a breakdown in relationship, but now there has been a change from a state of enmity and fragmentation to one of harmony and fellowship. Reconciliation takes place through the cross of Christ or the death of Christ. Every single thought, word, deed, intention, wrong intention that is sinful, that is something that God says to do or not do, that we fail at, Christ had to die for. It keeps us from God in relationship, separate and dead to him dead in relationship through the cross and the death of Christ 2 Corinthians 5:18 says God reconciled us to himself through Christ who reconciled us God did our salvation our reconciliation the gospel is a separate work and act of God not our own which meaning that i don't have to do anything for god to accept me or to earn God's acceptance or forgiveness. I can't do anything because my works are as filthy rags. They are unable to attain the perfect holiness of God. Anytime I refer to me doing so I could be right with God is putting a slap in God's face and saying some way, somehow I'm able to obtain it in and of myself, by myself by trying to do something. And when I realize that there is nothing that I can do, that I am sinful and God is holy, 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 it makes me run to the cross and say, God, have mercy upon me. And guess what happens? You find this mercy and this grace in this gracious God that says, you are now forgiven because I paid the price for you. I've paid the price of death, I gave the perfect life and we now exchange your unrighteousness, your unholiness for my holiness. And now you may come and approach me as a priest, covered by my blood and God now becomes someone that is invincible or invisible, visible. God reconciled us to himself. We are no longer enemies, ungodly sinners, or powerless. Instead, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. It is a change in the total state of our lives. So ultimately, what does reconciliation bring? Ultimately, the climax of these, of this hymn that Paul is speaking to the churches in Colossae and the area that where it's gonna go out to, he's letting them know that this reconciliation it brings to the impossible to see God face to face. It brings the invincible holiness of God to become possibly visible. How? 1 Corinthians 13:12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. This mirror dimly is saying this earth on this life, we see through a mirror dimly. It's, it's like having a haze on it or maybe a colored type of mirror, a glass that, that is stained and you can see merely through it dimly. But then, when is then? Then is when we see God in his glory, whether he comes for us or we die and we enter before him as his children. It says, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. We began this existence on this earth from a God who took the dirt and formed man and breathed into him in his nostrils face to face. I believe in my heart that the holiness of God Is his the epitome of all intimacy. It is the greatest intimacy. See, his invisible attribute of himself is this face-to-face intimacy. And that's what you and I are made for. We look for it in everything that's been created. That's why we constantly worship and lean to worship everything else other than God. We worship things that are made. We worship ourselves. We worship anything other than God because we're looking for this face. Everyone knows you can see how someone feels, and you the most intimate is that lip-to-lip, face-to-face. And that's what this brings, this Reconciliation. Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Seeing God's face is the most holy. Why? It's never been done. Because there's nothing like it. And no one has ever seen it, ever. It's the most intimate. And we were created for that face-to-face. As I have the worship team come up, this reconciliation that we're talking about, that God would bring us to a face-to-face relationship in eternity, right? God saves us, then he sanctifies, means makes us more like him, and then he glorifies us. There's a, a last state of our being. Right now, we're not in glorification. We're still in the process of sanctification. But the day we make have our last breath or the day he comes for us, after that moment, you will no longer, if you are a believer, be in the process of sanctification. Now you will have, you'll be in the place of glorification. And then you will see the invisible God. You will see him face to face. If the angels had to hide their eyes from it, if Moses had to be head, uh, hid in a rock, in, a, in, a, in the crest of a rock, could you imagine what's in store for us? Could you imagine what's in store for us? How is this done? It's done by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, by God having this plan. The plan of salvation. By him not just saying, Man, they messed up, they're gonna mess up, and this is what is good, and and they're doomed forever. But by his grace and his mercy, he comes and he reaches down and he saves all those who believe. I want to ask you today, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? If you have never received the gift of salvation, this is a gift that he'd make you right. This is a gift that he'd pay for your, your sins. If you've never received that, would you receive it today? Would you follow Jesus? Would you turn from your sins? Would you be willing to say, I'm willing to give up everything in my life for you, Jesus, because you gave up everything for me? That doesn't make you saved. That doesn't make Him forgive you. But are you willing to turn from your sins? Will you have the same reaction that Isaiah had and said, I am a man of unclean lips. I need to turn from my sins? I want you to know that it's not a trick. It's nothing bad that God's doing when you turn from your sins. God is a holy God. And when we are walking away from our sins, the other direction, we're walking towards God. And we experience the beauty of a moment of holiness and righteousness that's not of our own. Because he's the one that's turning us. See, even if you decide to say, I believe in God, I wanna accept God, that didn't come from you. That faith came from God, it's him working inside of you. And you're starting to experience the work of the fullness of God in your life. And as you turn to your brother and your sisters to the left and the right and you say, look, experience the fullness of God today in what Christ has done for you, all of a sudden you begin to experience again what Christ says, building itself up in love not pointing people to what they're able to do but pointing them to what christ has done for them see the power of christ now lives in us that we may be able once you believe, to turn from our sins to deny ungodliness and it ain't a one-time turning it's a turning every day every minute every second It's turning after this church on the way home to church. It's turning tomorrow morning. It's a turning, it's a turning, it's a turning that Christ does in us because he wants us to experience the life of Christ. Paul says, it's no longer me, but it's Christ who lives in me. And that life is a holy life. It is a righteous life. Not obtained on your own good works, but is what God does in your life. There's a a sickness that we have, and it brings death, and that is sin. And God has already brought us the healing, which is the gospel, to bring us from that penalty of sin, which is eternal separation. If we're not eternally separate from God, then why don't we turn to him and say, here I am, Lord. Take me. I'll live for you. I'll love you. I'll obey you. I'll walk after you because you've had mercy upon me, because you've forgiven me. There's nothing no longer between you and I. There's no longer rejection, it's all acceptance. It's what Christ has done. That is reconciliation. It's changing this relationship that was not right and now makes it right. God's reconciled us to himself through Christ. God reconciles us to himself through the death of his son. Thus we are no longer enemies, ungodly sinners and sinners in the sense of sinning without caring about it and with no remorse but we are now what? Loved of God that he's poured out in our hearts we're now children of God and through that love that he's poured out we may live this life unto God we're about to take of the Lord's Supper and this is a visible symbol of reconciliation God giving his body broken for us that we may be able to remember that brokenness, to let us know for sure that we are forgiven if you believe that he has died for you, if you receive that, if you respond to that, and then his blood that was poured out. So now you can approach God boldly and you can see him one day face to face. The invisible becomes visible visible. Jesus. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He's definitely not an angel, and he's not a created being. He is God Almighty. Let us worship Jesus today.